0: I want to welcome all of you that are here today, as you know, I always sit out on my perch and welcome everybody in, Uh, getting to know a handful of you that are new with us this morning. We're excited to have you here, as what we're doing today is winding down uh, the series that we've been in for uh, the past few weeks, this series that we've been calling Peculiar, where we've been looking at the people of God and the ethics of Easter, as we've been saying it. With two weeks left in the series, we've been looking how we as the people of Jesus can recapture the distinctives of the earliest Christians. What set those first Jesus followers apart from their Roman neighbors? What, what set them as a different people, a counterculture, as strange and even at times dangerous to Rome? while ultimately proving so attractive, though dangerous, while ultimately proving so attractive, so powerful, that it turned over the Roman Empire in three centuries. A, 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 a transformation of power at a civil political level, unlike anything else, one that was done by nonviolent means to overturn the big bad Roman Empire in just three centuries. This offensive, yet di- distinctive and attractive Uh, distinctives, were all of them rooted and sourced for the earliest Christians, not in some uh, upstart marketing agency out of Galatia, and they're, we're going to help you guys figure out how to, you know, take Rome. For them, they were natural, logical implications of the resurrection of Jesus. This is why we've been calling them the ethics of Easter. And so over the past few weeks, you know, in our first practice, we looked at the uh, racial implications of Easter, the socioeconomic implications of Easter, the ideological implications of Easter, and, and last week, the anthropological implications of Easter and what it means to be human. And so the ethics of Easter created and fashioned these earliest Christians as a diverse people united in a new identity, who were marked by their promiscuous generosity and a love for their enemy is all that was situated as a culture of life, defending the sanctity of all human beings. And so if you'll turn or tap to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 today, today we're moving on from the racial, the socioeconomical, the ideological, and the anthropological to this week looking at the sexual implications of Easter. Welcome. For those of you that are new today, this is, this is, we, I mean, we talk about what the Bible talks about. And so sometimes that brings us into fun topics like this. So uh, today we're looking at, like I said, the sexual implications of Easter. I'm doing a quick age check of the room. Viewer description. No, it's not going to be that crazy. But, you know, I don't want to explain the birds and the bees for you. That's your job uh, to your kids. So today we're looking at the relevance and the application of the early church's uh, sexual ethic. Uh, We are looking at what Larry Hurtado, he's a historian, to paraphrase him, said, the resurrection was the most spectacular revelation regarding the human body. Man, I just think about that quote. The resurrection was the most spectacular revelation regarding, and, and you might fill in, you know, where, where you go when you die, right? Or the forgiveness of sins. The resurrection was, was the spectacular revelation of like how much Jesus loves us. Hurtado says the most spectacular revelation that's found in the resurrection was what we believe about the human body, and then he goes on to say, among the Romans, it was an unthinkable idea which caught the world by storm. It was, in his words, a sexual revolution. And so if you'll join me in standing as we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Each week we stand as we read from the scriptures, and this is so pertinent today. We stand specifically because when we're reading from the scriptures, we are not, as, as I, I keep saying, little brains on a stick. We are embodied people. And the scriptures, the way of Jesus applies to our embodied selves. And so, with that being said, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, and then we'll go into a little bit uh, chapter 7. And then I'll pray for us, and then uh, we'll begin to kind of see what Paul's up to here. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, you'll also see it behind me. Paul writes All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Chapter seven, verse one. Now concerning the matter about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And so to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for... God, your, your people uh, gathered here today. God, I was joking earlier, uh, people holier than me uh, on such a beautiful Sunday. Uh, the fact that we'd all gather here together to talk about the uh, sexual ethics of the early church, uh, saints in our midst. Um, so God, I just pray that you would help us today, that we would just reflect on the importance of our bodies in the Christian faith. God, the centrality of what it means to be not just embodied image bearers, but for as Paul said, for our bodies to be the very dwelling place of Your Holy Spirit. Help us to see the implications of that today, God. Help us to see the uh, the silliness and the lies, uh, God, the hypocrisy between the sexual ethic given to us by our world, um, God. That we might find the joy in life that You've actually called us to. Be with us. We pray. In name. We pray. Amen. Amen. We'll go ahead and be seated. Well, in the world of the early church, as we've just read, we find this new ethic of Easter regarding our bodies and our sexuality and its practical application within a local church community. And so, as an outline for those of you taking notes, or so that all of you can know just how close we are to being done, uh, you'll see behind me kind of three points that we'll hit. Instead of jumping around to some different Bible verses like we've done in the past through the series today, Paul just gives us like a, a really good central point in 1 Corinthians six and seven. So we're just going to with his line of thought. In verses 12 through 13, we're going to look at the history, kind of behind the Christian uh, sexual revolution. Uh, In 14 through 20 of chapter 6, we'll look at the theology, the basis of that revolution. In 7, 1 through 9, the mission, the practical outworking of what that looks like. And so theology in the middle with history, theology, and mission as we make our way through. Now, as a brief little like forward this is absolutely just like last week a loaded and complex topic there are things today that i wish we could spend our time on but, but I, I know how beautiful it is outside i know you've got tomorrow off you've got you, you guys want so here's what we'll say today we're going to move through i want to follow paul's line of thought um, but there may be things that we may just briefly point at or even move by and and that's not because i'm, I'm scared to talk about that or we you know don't don't want to but i want to want to keep us moving and so here's what i'll say if if you have questions, if you have comments, if you have concerns about anything today, come and talk to me afterwards. Email me. Let's get coffee. Sometimes some of these conversations actually work better uh, as a conversation. Um, but, but I'll just say that. There may be things like, well, what about this? What about that? Absolutely. Let's, let's talk. Let's, let's get into that. But let's start with history. Looking back at 1 Corinthians 6 verses 12 and 13. Specifically, the name of the letter that we're reading from 1 Corinthians is a letter to the church of the city of Corinth. And Corinth was anything but a tame pleasantville. It was one that was sexually free. I mean, just think about it. Their patron deity of the city of Corinth was Aphrodite, the goddess of love and sex. And so for this new little, you know, fledgling community of Jesus followers, those who worship Jesus and not Aphrodite, the question is, how does Jesus and following him fit within the customs and the behaviors of our city? How does my new allegiance and faith in Jesus change the way that I relate to love and to sex? These are the sorts of questions that were on the minds of the Corinthian believers and not just on their minds, put to papyrus and mailed to the apostle Paul, asking him what we should do. Sent to Paul who had planted the church around five years earlier. And so 1 Corinthians is actually not uh, not just Paul writing this out of nowhere. It's a response to, it's a reply to the email that they had sent earlier, the questions they had been asking. And so throughout 1 Corinthians, Paul will repeat and quote things that they had said in the letter they had written to him before then responding. Three of these show up in verses 12 through 13, which give us a front row seat into the the, uh, Corinthian, the Roman sexual ethic. If you look back in 12 through 13, you'll see some little quotation marks where what Paul is doing here is not writing something for himself. He's quoting what the Corinthians have said to him. So in verse 12, twice, Paul quotes them as saying, all things are lawful for me. And then again, all things are lawful for me. So Paul is quoting from them as saying, when we think about our sexual ethic, all things are lawful. That is, I have a right to do anything. The first aspect of the Roman, the Corinthian sexual ethic was that sex, if you're taking notes, was about rights. Sex was about rights, rights and freedoms, and specifically the rights and freedoms of men see, in the Roman culture, the act of sex was an expression of social status and authority. And specifically for the men on the top, the powerful freemen, they had liberty to have sex with just about anyone as long as they were of lower status than them. The Greek orator uh, Demosthenes, you'll see behind me, says, we men have heteri, that is a Greek word for prostitutes or concubines, for pleasure, Slaves for our daily care, there's a little euphemism there. And wives to give us legitimate children and guardians of our household. See, the sexual rights of the free men was, I have free buffet to anybody along the track. And even different breakdowns of what am I looking for in these different groups. So the prostitute, the courtesan, that's for pleasure. The, the slave within my house, that's just kind of for my daily, you know, care and then my wife, well that, the wife, she's specifically for child care, for raising up child. And so this actually hints at the dissimilar expectations for many women, specifically the wives of free men. As though men had free reign to have sex with just about anybody, women were hypercalled to modesty, chastity, and monogamy within the marriage bed because their primary place, their rights, their focus within the civil order of Rome was largely about producing heirs for, you know, dads, all, all that dad had. And so on one hand, you had, for women, strict monogamy. And on the other hand, you had this huge liberty for free men. And everybody underneath was just pickings for the men, both male and female. Sex was about rights. And so the only legal prohibitions for men was trespassing on the rights of another freeman. Adultery wasn't something you committed against your wife. Adultery was something you committed against another man by sleeping with his wife or his daughter. Because the rights that were being broken was not the woman's, but her husband's. So the Roman sexual ethic was one based in rites. In 6.13, Paul gives a second quote from the Corinthian church. When he writes that they had written to him saying, well, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. A way of saying the body is for sex and sex is for the body. If you're taking notes, the second dimension of the Roman sexual ethic was sex was about appetites. rights, and appetites. Sex was little more than satisfaction of a craving. If I'm hungry, I'm eat. If I'm thirsty, I drink, and if I'm aroused well, to quote one Roman author behind me, said, if your loins are swollen and there's some homeborn slave boy or girl around where you can quickly stick it, would you rather burst with tension? Not I. I like an easy lay. You see, sex was the simple satisfaction of desire, attraction, and over. What, would you burst with tension? Just grab somebody. It's, it's, it's as easy, as simple as you eating something or, or often also related, blowing your nose or going to the restroom. Is a simple biological function. And so why make a big hullabaloo? It's about appetites and with that, desires, And the Roman world celebrated the diverse appetites and the desires that each individual had. They believed that they were born this way. A deep connection to astrology and following the stars. It was understood that your your sexual makeup, who you are, was assigned at birth by the stars that you were born over, given by the fates, given by the gods. And so a prostitute was referred to as an ill-starred woman. She was born under a bad star. Your your sexual drive, high or low, was you know because of some you know configuration of the stars above you. Your interests, your your kind of you know kinks, we might say, the things that you were into, whether deviant or accepted, were somehow wired from birth, given to you by the star sign above you. And so the Roman world, in the midst of still having the legal protections for men, was a buffet of sexual opportunities. We've talked about prostitutes, we've talked about slaves, we we could spend a whole bunch of time talking about the practice of pederasty, which was kind of a Roman form of mentoring, an older man mentoring a young teenager, a boy, Um, but but there being um, sexual practice between the two of them, with a whole bunch of loops, uh, loopholes, and workarounds to ensure that the dignity of the boy wasn't. Um how do I say this, wasn't taken away while still having there be uh, sexual play between the two, for lack of a better way of saying it. So you had this buffet of um, orgies, both same-sex pairings and we have repeated instances of same-sex marriages. Like the the Roman world was not this kind of astute, like I said, Pleasantville of just kind of like, you know, whatever you may think it might have been. Largely okay, largely welcoming of a a buffet of, man, you've got appetites, you've got desires, and so pursue them. Go for them. It's, it's an appetite. If you're hungry, you feed yourself. And so this sexual buffet is offering. is a vision that sex was about appetites. In verse 13, we find a third quote where Paul says, quoting them, God will destroy them both. Now, if you look at verse 13 in the ESV, it actually doesn't have the quotation marks that continue. If you look at uh, the Bible, even behind me, you'll see it ends at food, you know, the food line. And then it, it seems as though Paul is saying, God will destroy both one and the other. Um, The ESV is an incredible English translation. Uh, the Bible might be like inspired and, you know, inerrant or whatever. Translations aren't. And so it requires us to read a lot of, you know, translations because translators may get it wrong. And so here's one area that normally the ESV is great. One area that I would like, well, I think the NIV got it better here. The main reason being that if Paul is the one saying God will destroy both one and the other, he's going to immediately contradict himself in verse 14, where he says the body isn't going to be destroyed. It's going to be raised. And so it doesn't seem that Paul's saying, oh, the body's going to be destroyed. It seems like this is a Corinthian ethic for their sexuality. It's just an appetite and you're going to die anyway. Your body's going to be, you know, turn into dust one day anyway. Why make a big deal about all of this? And so I would say this is probably a better understanding of the Corinthian. A third quote, a casual view of sex. That our bodies, that sex is insignificant, literally signifying nothing other than what we ascribe to it. Our bodies and our sex are, are ascribe the pleasures and the purposes that we give to them. And so that we can keep the rhyme going because that's what preachers have to do. Sex is about rights, sex is about appetites, and here sex was about tonight. It's inconsequential. It's, your life is fleeting. What, you know, what, let's, what happens in this life stays in this life, so enjoy it while you have it. Carpe diem, seize the day. This life is inconsequential. This, your body, what you do with it is insignificant, so you assign whatever you, desires, you want to, and you go for them. Now, in many counts, reading through these, this seems utterly foreign, archaic, and dare I say, patriarchal to our modern ears. But the Angelino sexual ethic, what you and I are being shaped in, is not that dramatically different from this. If you'll if you'll humor me while we tease this out in the Angelino the modern sexual ethic we too believe sex is about rights the only transition that's happened in the American sexual revolution is that we have placed the freedoms and the rights of women on the same level as the Roman men. And so the only firm prohibition here is not doing something against someone else's rights, but, but either challenging the free decisions that others have to do with their bodies what they please, or by abusing the autonomy that men and women have over their bodies, whether that's assault or rape or some kind of coercion or minors. So we would say the only firm prohibitions for sex in our age are challenging other people's free decisions and abusing their autonomy. And as necessary and just as consent is, as good as that is, we should lift that up. It is worth asking, is that alone a satisfactory ethic for our sexuality? Is that alone actually leading to a flourishing sense of our bodies and our sexuality? But let's hold that thought for a moment because though the Angelino ethic preaches consent it teaches it teaches aggression dominance degradation of human bodies what we find as given to us and what most people would agree is the place that you go to learn about what sex is is through pornography and what we learn from that is a schizophrenic sexual ethic which in public praises and applauds the need for consent but behind closed doors we're being shaped in one that wires us to value and be attracted to degradation of human bodies, objectification of human bodies and a selfish relationship to sexuality where it's largely about my Release my pleasure at whatever appetite I may find on this particular website. And so, in the holy Bible of the Angelino sexual ethic, porn has raised and wired a generation of individuals, of people, who, though we might preach consent, what we have been wired through the neuroplasticity of our minds to desire or to pursue is the degradation and the objectification of human bodies. And it has left a generation traumatized, assaulted, and addicted. We are anything other than free. It has actually taken away our rights. Uh, You can go read a quote with, uh, you didn't think you were going to hear about her on on Sunday on on sexuality, but Billie Eilish. uh, In an interview with her at 19 years old, reflecting on what pornography had done to her. We often uh, refer to porn as being a men's issue, but Billie Eilish, man, she just, her words sear as she talks about what pornography had done to her in traumatizing her, giving her nightmares, and her desire in to, to, be, to fit in with, with the boys, to be seen as, as welcomed and accepted and to fit in with the sexual ethic and what's expected of her and what she should want to desire left her traumatized in nightmares. Like her, her literal quote was, it broke her brain. That pornography is this ethic of, hey, freedom, it's about freedoms and rights and you being free. And what happens is it actually restricts us and actually makes that, that not just breaking our bodies or breaking our minds, but even breaking our bodies as the skyrocketing rates of erectile dysfunction with men, which is largely linked to pornography addiction. So this is, is this making us more free or less? Similarly, we live in an age that sex is about appetites. Like the Roman world, we say to ourselves, Would you rather burst with tension? Feed your desires, get your bliss. Sex positivity is to hold sex and the orgasm simply as a bodily function, acceptable in whatever form it's manifested. So let's just step back for a moment and consider if my desires, the longings of my body can be satisfied in one night stands, in porn, in erotica, or a vibrating piece of body-safe silicon, is that a high or low view of my sexuality? Is that, a high, is, that, is that that there is something inherently special and sacred about this deep part of me or do I view that as simple and as low as anything else? Because Paul compares well, because the Corinthians compare food and the body to sex and the body. I think what we find ourselves living within is an age that wants to applaud and say we have so much sex. And the problem is not that we have so much sex. We have so little of it. We are living in a, a food desert of sex. You see, a food desert all over our city is a geographic area where access to healthy food is restricted or non-existent. And what is in its place for members and families and individuals to consume from there? What's affordable and available is cheap, flavorful, excessive, and unhealthy food that leads to not having anything that's actually fruits and vegetables, healthy food. They feed and consume themselves, poisoning themselves with the only food that's been able and offered to them, making themselves sick in the long haul over food that because it's cheap, because of the ease of its use, that's what's taken. I would argue that Los Angeles is a sex desert. We live in the, the, the sexual Burger King of have it your way, but the way that is offered to us is not one of our deepest desires, but a cheap offering of easy, excessive, flavorful options that are all at the end of the day, devoid of health and the nutrients and the necessity of the deepest cravings of ourselves. Sex is about rights, it's about appetites, and sex is about tonight. Sex and our bodies are inconsequential in our view, they are fleeting. They have only the pleasures and the purposes we assign to them. Some of you may say, no, Ryan, I, like, sex is the, is the thing here. You go down the street and it's on every single billboard. Sex sells in the city of Los Angeles. This is what it's all about. And, and the issue is actually, in fact, that something that is that, it's, it's actually, oh. Melinda Selmas, in her book, Human Sexuality, I'll just let her say it, uh, sexual authenticity, excuse me. Melinda Selmas writes, you'll see it behind me. Beneath all the pageantry of free sex and self-love, there is a fundamental belief that the body doesn't mean anything, that it is insignificant in a literal sense, signifying nothing. You can do anything you like with it. You can pleasure it with a vacuum cleaner or you can get a drunken stranger in an alley to whip it and you can give it to anyone for any reason. It's just sort of a wet machine, a tool that you can use in exchange for whatever purpose suits your fancy. In order to believe this, you must either accept that A, your body is not you. It's just a shell or a juicy robot that the real you, that disembodied ghost controls. Or B, that there's no such thing as human value or dignity. It's just a nice pretense that we make because we're terrified of the senseless and nihilistic universe. When we say that our bodies and sex are insignificant, able to be assigned whatever we give them, we have to either come to two terms. Either the body means nothing, and that's why we can assign it what we do, or there is some little special part of us, little like spirit self, that's control, that this is just a robot that I can do whatever I want with. This wet machine, this juicy robot, as she calls it. And so what Paul does is he looks out over these three tiers of, of the sexual ethic of Corinth and of Los Angeles, and what is his response? You say you have the right to do anything, but not all things are helpful. This sexual ethic, when you actually look at it, isn't helping you. It's actually hurting you. It's not dignifying your body, but it's degrading it. He says you say you have the right to all things, but it's, it's dominating you is what he says. It's actually stealing your freedom. It's addicting and enslaving you. You say that sex is just an appetite and the body's going to be destroyed anyway. But what does Paul say at the end of verse 13? The body has a purpose. And that purpose is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And that sexual immorality is an inclusive term for any and all sexual acts, uh, uh, specifically, that are outside of Jesus's definition of marriage. We might come to this in, in a second or so. But some of you, you know, sexual morality. I know that there's a common phrase that what Jesus, what what Paul's dealing with here is exclusively prostitution and not anything outside of Jesus's definition of marriage. And if that's you, um, that's a really good conversation that we need to have. And we, we've got more to do right now, <laughs> so you can come and ask me, and, and I'd love to talk through this. But but here's what I want to see for Paul as he's working through this framework. What he sees is that the ethic of the age regarding sex in our bodies is not is not working it's hurting us it's not helpful it's dominating us and it's it's requiring us to let go of the purpose that we have it's actually incredibly dehumanizing and so amid an ethic that upon consideration is actually anti-body what a declaration paul makes when he says the lord is for the body that your body has value, that sex has a purpose. And this leads us out of history and into theology as we move into verse 14, where Paul helps us see why our bodies have a purpose, why our bodies are not made for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Verse 14, Paul says, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. The bodily resurrection of Jesus, Jesus being raised bodily, physically, his disciples touching him, being held by him, him sitting on the beach, eating with them, the embodied resurrection of Jesus means more than just some kind of you know, permission slip to go to heaven when you die. It means more than simply your, your sins being forgiven. It means that for those who walk in the way of Jesus and have found him as king, it means your bodies too will be raised from death. And so unlike the Roman belief that your body will be destroyed, therefore what you do with it doesn't really matter. The gospel, Paul says here, God's going to raise your body and therefore what you do with it now truly matters, that it continues into eternity. Paul says, what you do with your body is a declaration of what you believe about it. How you treat your body is because it is yourself says what you think about this part, this this very sense of you. And so the sexual ethic for the early church was an ethic of Easter, realizing that our bodies are not going to be left behind, but raised. And so what we do with them now and here deeply matters for ourselves. And so Paul now moves to challenge the Roman and our sexual ethic about rights, appetites, and tonight. Through three, you might've caught them, do you not know questions? In which he goes, You say it's about rights, you say it's about appetites in tonight, and then he, he kind of inverses it, and then he goes back through by using do you not know questions to kind of like take that apart. So look at the first one in 1st uh, 15 of chapter 6. Paul says, What? Do you not know that your bodies are now members of Christ? In the argument that sex was going, you know, the body is going to be destroyed and left behind anyway. Paul says, do you not know sex is not about tonight? The body is not insignificant. Your body is now united with Jesus. Your body right here walking around in your life and the way that you treat it and use it is the very representation of the, uh, Paul uses the language members, the limbs and appendages of Jesus. And so sex is not about tonight. Sex has an immense glory to it and not in the sense that maybe some of you think. Sex is a glory to it. And then the way that we use our bodies has cosmic significance about who we say Jesus is. How we treat our bodies says something about how we see and treat Jesus. And so that's why Paul asks, shall I degrade the glory and honor of Jesus by using his members, my body for sexual immorality? What does he say? Never. Never. Because the body is not insignificant. Sex is not just about tonight. It has a deep abiding glory to it when, when stewarded well. We can head to ourselves. In verse 16, Paul gives his second, do you not know? What does he say? Do you not know? He who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For the sake of argument, uh, you'll just have to believe me right now. Paul's use of prostitute means far more than paying for sex. Uh, The Greek word, it's a whole big thing. Come talk. This is another, right? Moment where we could spend 15 minutes on just this, and we're not going to. So, for the sake of argument, what we're dealing with is any sex outside of Jesus' definition of marriage. And so, what Paul says here is you say sex is about appetites, you say sex is about just satisfying a craving. Paul says sex is about so much more, sex is about oneness. Sex is about, he quotes from Genesis 2.24, that the, the husband and wife come together and become one flesh, that there is something happening alongside the spiritual dimension and, and the, the hormones of oxytocin and vasopressin. Oxytocin, which gets released when a mother is breastfeeding, it floods uh, in more n- numbers of the woman's mind and vasopressin floods what they call the monogamy hormone, men's. You literally are making a commitment in sexuality, regardless of what you're married, Paul says, of, of a bonding experience Experience at a chemical and spiritual level. And so your body is writing a check that your self, your life maybe hasn't or cannot cash. Paul says, regardless of whether or not you're married, in verse 224, quoting from Genesis, regardless of the vows, bo- that sex is a oneness bonding experience. And so what that means is as you now are a, a have oneness with Jesus, he goes, should I then use... Jesus's body, to make his body one with immorality and sin. Again, he says, never. And a whole new frame. Notice that Paul doesn't do anything about, about the uh, ethics of you know, being faithful to your spouse or you know, the adultery. So he could go, you know, why would you sin against you know, another free man this way? There's so many reasons why that we ethically could make a claim against sexual immorality or even prostitution. Paul links it in a new understanding of the body. Your body now is the body of Jesus. And so that means something about what you do with it. And so sex is not about appetite. Sexual ethic needs to be grounded. I said a moment ago, is, is consent enough? I don't think so. What we need is not consent, but what uh, Pastor Tim Keller calls a super consensual relationship. Not one where I'm just giving over my body for this one experience, or maybe even just this one uh, season of my life, but a whole self-giving of myself to spouse. And so this is also why things like ethical porn, feels like an oxymoron, erotica, or even like uh, animated illustrated porn, which is incredibly popular right now, which is a testament to how much pornography is reaching within uh, young boys beginning at the ages of nine and upwards. The fastest growing type of pornography is cartoons. So you just let that sit with you and what that means about what's happening within our world. But the whole point is, if it's a cartoon, if it's erotica, it's ethical porn, and there's consent, then is that inherently sinful? Because the whole point is, what is sex for? What is your body for is the motivating question that drives us through this, and even into questions of cohabitation or sex apart from or outside of marriage. You see, for those in Jesus, we move from this being about more than just my body. Paul says, shall I make the body of Christ one of immortality and sin? Never. Never. Verse 19, Paul's final, do you not know? Where he says, do you not know that your body is what? A temple of the Holy Spirit residing within you. And then he says, your body is not your own. And so as we began, sex is not about rights. It's not about my freedoms. It's not about my body, my choice. Sex is about stewardship. For Paul, he would say, It's Jesus, your body is Jesus's body and therefore it is Jesus's choice. And and even more than that, sex then is not about rights. It's about stewardship. It is about the fact that my body is the, the place where the Holy Spirit now dwells. And so I have been commissioned to steward this for his glory and for oneness. And even more than that, Paul's whole reference here, there's a whole thing right here. So just five seconds on this, maybe more than five. Paul talks about how you now have the Holy Spirit residing within you. This is language he uses regularly about being this new birth, which would be in the Roman culture where you believe that your, your, you know, sexual fate, everything that you're into and going to do was given to you at birth through the stars. Paul now says that though, whatever you may be born with, you have the Holy Spirit empowering and residing within you. You have a new star that you've been born under. You have a new power that you are not fated to any type of sexual behavior, but the Holy Spirit within you is empowering you in new birth and a new life. That doesn't mean that there's no struggle, but it means that you have a new life available to you. In Kyle Harper's book, From Shame uh, to Sin, where he, he charts the, the, ch- the transition from the Roman sexual ethic to the Christian one. It's big and very, very fun for weirdos like me. This is what he acknowledges as one of the primary components of what the early Christian sexual ethic brought was not just what we do with our bodies, but an understanding that humans have free will through this work of the Holy Spirit, that you are not locked into a particular, you you are not born into a certain kind of way that you are going to live, that these intricate desires within you, that the Holy Spirit is able and at work within you, empowering you to live a new way. It was the thing that didn't, Romans couldn't fit it in their minds. You were born this way. And so for Paul, sex is not about rights. It's about stewardship. It's not about appetites, but oneness. It's not about tonight. It's about glory. And so sprinkled within verses 17 through 20, Paul details what, how do we live? How do we live now in, in, in place of this? As a segue into mission, Paul says in verse 17, live out of the oneness you have with Christ. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. And verse 20, glorify God with your bodies. And so how do we do this? The beginning of chapter seven is where I begin where Paul begins to detail this. And now we might think that oneness with Christ and living into that, fleeing from sexual immorality and glorifying God means that we just outright go sex bad. Jesus good. And it seems based on seven verse one, that's actually how some people in the Corinthian church were were responding. As they're seeing people in the church that are like sleeping with prostitutes and they're doing whatever they want, there's some in the church that are going, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. They're calling for pure like asceticism, pure chastity, pure celibacy for everybody in the church. But Paul in verses two through nine describes that there are two ways the Christian sexual ethic can be played out. Two gifts as he called them the calling of marriage and the calling of singleness or vocational singleness and vocational marriage. And both of these are, if we are willing to hear them, just as much a peculiar challenge to the sexual ethic of Rome as it is to our city today. And so at some point, I would love to come back and do more time on First Corinthians chapter 7. Um, I'm actually thinking about, we just might hang out in First Corinthians for a good chunk next year, so... I'm thinking about that. But let's, let's, let me just quickly, briefly summarize what Paul's flow is of these marriage and singleness as these two avenues of living into oneness with Christ, fleeing sexual immorality, and glorifying God. In chapter seven, verses two through five, Paul describes in his words, uh, the monogamous marriage of husband and wife as the God-glorifying and body-dignifying place for sex. And in doing so, identifies all else outside of that as sexual immorality. I 100% know how that sits with everybody in the room, hearing that. And so here's, I, I understand, I, I understand Paul's words here. And so I would just say, if you are, this is challenging to you, you have questions about this, if this is enraging to you, I, come and talk to me. I just, I, let me buy you lunch and let's talk about this. I want to hear from you and let's, let's begin to hopefully maybe get, okay, Why? at least. Maybe you may still disagree, but at least understand why. But, but for the sake of the moment, Paul's understanding is that monogamous marriage of husband and wife, that is the place where sex finds its most God-glorifying and body-dignifying place. And further, that sex within marriage is to be, as I said a moment ago, super consensual. That husband and wife don't just consent to their body for a night or for this season, and not just their bodies, but their bodies as part of their whole selves given over to the other. That's Paul's language there, saying that the spouse has authority over the wife and the husband has authority over the the wife and then also adds the wife has authority over her husband's body. It is a mutual self-giving and entrusting of the other person having stewardship of each other's body. And so this has been, this is the, going back to the Roman ethic, the fact that he says the wife has authority over her husband's body. Think about back at the beginning, sex being all about men's rights. This is the kind of thing that would get you, if you were a free man, laughed at. This is a laughing stock. You have free rights to just about any woman in all of the Roman Empire, and your wife is saying, nope, just me. What is wrong with you? Like, you, you leave her. And yet this is what the people of Jesus committed to. Paul continues reminding, man, this word. Paul continues in his teaching on marriage right here. He reminds us that sex is for marriage, but marriage is not for sex by showing that marriage is about a deeper, um, 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 committed devotion to God, by asserting both the ability and the need for Christian couples to abstain, to fast from sex, somewhat uh, temporarily, but somewhat regularly, for the sake of praying together. When was the last time, like people that grow up in the church, you heard that in like a sex and marriage like sermon series or book. Paul says, if you're married, there is still a call to some form of asceticism and prayer and fasting, taking a break from this. Paul qualifies these times, yes, need to be mutually agreed upon and for a limited time, so the enemy may not use our best intentions against us, but he assumes that this would be part of even, a, that, 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 that is not asceticism from sex and finding the deeper longings of our bodies represented in deep communion with God and with others. Paul doesn't seem to go, marriage, you guys go crazy, single people, y'all stay celibate. He actually says there are times even with marriage. I, I'm still working through this for myself. You can clearly see of what Paul's getting at. So this is Paul's understanding of marriage. In verses six and seven, Paul then moves to the issue of singleness, where he gives his personal experience of vocational singleness and celibacy as the basis for his personal opinion that it's better. Paul says the single life is better. The celibate not having sex life is better. Not because marriage and sex are bad, but in verses, uh, if you go from 7 down to verses 35, 32, 28, and even 40, Paul kind of understands why. He says those who walk within vocational singleness are able to have a more ordered life, a less anxious life, a less troubled life, and even a happier life. But what's so profound is Paul says that these things exist not so that the single individual person may secure undivided devotion for themselves and what they want for their lives, but verse 35, but so they may secure undivided devotion for the Lord. If there's one thing that I can say to uh, single brothers and sisters here is man, you guys would wholeheartedly agree that, that like you guys look in, I have people, come, you guys come over to my house for dinner and you see like married bliss and it's just my kids like screaming all over. Aaron and I are like, like borderline having a tiff at all times and you go home and you're like, yes, my life, my house is more ordered. My life is less anxious. My life is less troubled. I have a, a happier life. Yes, there's, there's these, these deep uh, relational uh, longings for intimacy and, and 100%, but these, this is pretty good. And, and I would say that some of you see that though as ending at, at having secure devotion for yourself and for what you want to do and what makes your life easier. For Paul, the gift of singleness is not so that your life is easier, but so that you may secure undivided devotion to the Lord. Now that I have two kids, I'm just like, I used to pray so much. I, I could have a, a, a consistent thought. There's laughter from a mom in the back because she knows this. Like I, I could spend so much time being with others and opening my home and being available. And that's just not what it is. But similarly for married folks, man, we'll get back to you in a second, us in a second. So here's what Paul does in verse seven, seven, he says, each has his own gift from God, one of one kind marriage and one of the other singleness. How are these gifts within the church? One, marriage and procreation is the life of earth Pointing to new creation. That the oneness that we have in male and female in marriage is the rebinding together of both image bearers. Male and female, he created them in the image of God. And in sex, within that marriage bonding, you have both image bearers coming back together again, overwhelmingly, and then in its created ideal, overflowing into life, into more life, more humans. Paul picks up on this in Ephesians chapter five and says, husband and wife is an image of Jesus and the church. And so what happens when you have a community that has married folks with little kids running around is what that is meant to be to the community is as they look at that, one, the high value of both male and female is the image of God. The dignity of their bodies that when brought together is in its created ideal meant to overflow into more little human image bearers, a picture of God's own life-making love. And even more than that, an image of Jesus in the church. This is why marriage and procreation is a gift to the church. But singleness and celibacy just as much is not the life of earth pointing to new creation. It's the life of new creation being drawn down to our lives here on earth. In Jesus' teachings, he talks about how in the new creation that that those of us that are raised, like Paul said, we will no longer be married or give ourselves in marriage. Then marriage is something for this, this life, this time right now. It is not the new creation vision that we're moving towards. And so what that means is that those who are living within that singleness, that celibacy now, are the life of new creation on display to the church community. I have found this for myself in my conversations with people in our church that are walking within that that new creation singleness, as I talk to them, and the overwhelming uh, satisfaction they have in the person of Jesus. That I just, I went, I go home and Aaron's like, how's your day? I'm like, I'm an awful Christian. Like I have so much work to do. And I see that as I spend time with those of you that have found a deep communion with Jesus in the midst of that place. A deep oneness that all of us are called to. and So the church needs to hold both of these two gifts up together. And both of those two gifts serving and supporting one another in their vocations. Now, as a brief thing, for 1,500 years, the, the, the calling of singleness and celibacy was the assumed posture of any real serious Christian. Marriage was the kind of like, yeah, if you really need to. 1,500 years. You know, 500 years ago, there was a needed reform, but the problem is, is that we have overcorrected now, and now the problem is not so much that we idolize celibacy and like, demonize marriage. Now we idolize marriage and romance, and we demonize singleness and celibacy. And so in order for us to recapture this peculiar distinctive, we need to recapture, where's Lorenzo? Here you go, buddy. We need to recapture the church as a family. A church as a family, which means that my family is not just me and my little little kids and somebody who's single means they don't have any family. The church as a family means that both those married with kids and those who are called the single vocational find the deep intimacy, the shared life, the, the experiences and joy as a family, as a community together that there is involvement in one another's life. There is transparency. There is a working through with each other to discern our gifting, to discern the calling that we have, whether to marriage or singleness. And so that means that we don't assume that what every single single person in the church needs is for you to arrange a marriage for them, for you to play the the hookup master or whatever. What that means is that we prayerfully discern the gifting that each of us have, whether that's singleness or marriage. We need churches that raise up and bring single people in. We need need more conversations about about the both challenges and joys of mixed orientation marriages. We need need to set the landscape that these are the giftings that Jesus has given the church as the way that we foster our bodies well. And we need to walk within those as a family. And the problem is for so many of us, we live, we need to normalize saying no to certain kinds of professional and and lifestyle choices so we can preserve the family relationship that we have with one another. For some of us, walking within marriage in the city of Los Angeles and kids feels like an impossible thing to do. And it's because we're so busy and isolated. For some of you, your singleness feels like an impossible thing to do. And you feel like Jesus called you to it, but it feels impossible. And it's, it's because of professional and lifestyle choices that we've made that we're not available to one another. In the city of Los Angeles, we're too busy. And I, I would argue that we're also too distant from one another. This is weird to talk about this in a Sermon on Sex, but one of the things for our church is we are a church that's committed to the West Side and communities living here on the West Side. And we don't just simply do that for the sake of mission. We do that for the sake of family community stuff. You, some of you may be driving in from like, you know, Burbank or, you know, from down in Redondo, wherever you might be. And you go, oh, on a Sunday morning, I can make it in 15 minutes. But what we're talking about at a church, this kind of family thing can exist and thrive, is not gathering just together on Sundays. It is an involvement in one another's lives of having each other over for dinner. Hey, I'm going to go get groceries. Do you want to come with me? Or is there anything I can get you? And it's not 45 minutes out of my way to make that happen on a Tuesday afternoon. What one author referred to as errand friends, where we live close enough to proximity to each other that we're able to just go, I'm going to go grab, I'm literally going to get orange juice. What are you, can I get you anything? Or we have co-working little spots that we can all walk to because on, on Wednesdays, we're all right there working together. These are the kinds of things that actually make this sort of ethic possible. And I would say in Los Angeles, we're far too busy and far too distant to achieve this. And so my, my invitation for some of you, you're driving in from, from you know, east or wherever, Be you might be better served in your singleness and in your marriage by finding a church closer to you. And for some of you, you love collective and you're like, man, I feel so distant. I, I, I would ask, okay, are you, what's your schedule look like and where are you geographically located? Those would be honestly my first two questions that I would ask. Is there like cliquish groups in our church? Yes, and we're coming for you. But the larger thing is are you actually setting yourself with a schedule and a geographic range that makes this sort of life possible? See, the early church was offensive in this kind of sexual ethic, but because it had churches that were so united with one another, it was attractive, that they were like, I can't believe these guys are giving up all the sex they could be having. But they look into how, how these men have this deep integrated life with others, and they're like, man, but I want that. And the women are just like applauding this in their, in their time and age. And similarly, I think the same would be true, that, that we have a sexual ethic that women applaud, where in this church, we're not objectified. Where in this church, my, my, my singleness is honored and dignified. My body is not object, like I am dignified. And we, in the midst of our mess, are walking with this together. You see, this was the early church. It was a sexual revolution that was shaped in the resurrection about glory and oneness and stewardship as shown through marriage and singleness. Sexual revolution, as we wind down, was an ethic of Easter. And so on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus and our future resurrection, this means our bodies mean something. At collectivechurch.com slash current series, we have a practice for this week as well as some resources. I would highly recommend you set aside less than an hour and um, you spend some time with either the audio or the video of John Tyson's, he's a pastor from New York, his lecture on sexual formation. He goes a little bit deeper into some of this stuff. I would highly recommend that. But as we move toward a time of response through prayer, table, and the song, I just want to ask you, what kind of sexual revolution is 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 not calling for out in the world, but in your body today? You see, all of us have been shaped by an ethic of our bodies and sex about rights, appetite, and about tonight, insignificant. And today, at some point, you found Paul's words piercing that you found the sexual ethic you've been shaped in is not helpful, but it's been hurtful. It hasn't left you more free, but actually it's been enslaving you. And, 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 and this deep conviction that your body is not a, a wet machine or a juicy robot. You have an inner conviction that your body has a purpose, a beauty and a dignity to it. Even if the world, even if people, even if yourself has told and treated your body or you've treated others' bodies as otherwise all of us here, this is a beautiful vision, this sexual revolution, or maybe not beautiful, but at least interesting. All of us, I believe at some level, look at the sexual ethic we're being shaped into and we desire change. We want some kind of revolution, some kind of new life and autonomy that is able to carry out a new way of being that is rooted in a cosmic significance and not just my fleeting desires. We desire change, but in our hurt and our shame, our enslavement and addiction, our objectification and our abuse, it might leave us wondering how. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, as we read today, Paul reminds us, you were bought with a price. Paul uses language of describing you and I as a slave being paid for and set free, that bought with a price language. This is the Greek word for a slave who, who at auction has been bought but then set free. And Paul says that that is is what has happened to every single one of us. That is the invitation of what Jesus can do for you and me, and that he has paid for you and I at a price, at the cost of his own body. On the cross, Jesus surrendered his rights for you to free you. On the cross, Jesus, as he was there naked and ashamed, he was doing this so that you might be clothed with his righteousness, no matter what's been done to you or you've done. He bore abuse to bring you and I healing, and he was powerless on the cross so that he might, through his spirit, give you his very power over Satan, sin, and death. In the verses that we've read today, Paul lists a series of sexual sins about which he's about to basically contradict through everything that we just read. And after reading each of these sexual sins among others, he says in six verse 11, and some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. The embodied life of resurrection power, the sexual revolution that Paul has described today is not for good people trying to get better, It's not for people that somehow got through high school and college unscathed and pure or whatever. It's for people who are hurt and ashamed. It's for people who are enslaved and addicted, people that were objectified and abused, some of them who used to be like this but have been made new through Jesus. And so the sexual revolution that you and I are called to that's available to us today is rooted in the work of Jesus. That on his cross, he died so that you might have life and he has brought an empowering work for you to not just be united with him in his body and yours in his but the ability to flee sexual immorality and to glorify God with your body and so that being said let's pray and let's just move now into a time of of responding to the spirit